Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Kevin Roos talking about his new book, Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin is a technology columnist for the New York Times. He's the host of the Rabbit Hole podcast and a regular guest on The Daily. He's also the New York Times best-selling author of two previous books, Young Money and The Unlikely Disciple. We're talking with Kevin today about AI and how it is changing the world, how it's changing our culture, how it's changing our economy, and how we can prepare our teenagers to thrive in an economy driven by automation. What can we do to protect our time and attention of our family as the algorithms used to control our attention get more and more complex? Kevin says it's not that we need to become more like computers in order to succeed in the future, but actually we need to become more human. So how can we become more human and how can we encourage the same from our teenagers? All that and more is coming up on the show today. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. So the book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. And it's kind of about your journey to understand what is the future going to hold um, and is AI going to destroy humanity or is it going to be a beautiful rosy existence and we live hand in hand with technology or where are we going to end up? You have been kind of writing about technology related topics for a long time now. Is that how you got interested in AI or um, where did this come from? Yeah, so I started looking into AI and automation seriously, maybe three or four years ago. And at the time, this was sort of what everyone in Silicon Valley was talking about. Um, you know, giant companies were spending billions of dollars developing new AI. People were sort of splitting um, into sort of two camps on this sort of optimists who thought AI was going to make the world better and transform everything. And we would, you know, become kind of enlightened humans who just spent all our time making art and playing video games and stuff because the robots would be doing everything for us. Right. And then there were pessimists who thought, you know, AI is going to kill all the jobs and we'll be obsolete and we'll just become the sort of slaves to the robots. And I was just interested in figuring out which of those was true or if the truth was somewhere in the middle. So I started talking to researchers, going to meetings, trying to learn as much as I could about what was actually happening in AI and, and also to more importantly, figure out what we should do about it. Because that was the piece that seemed to be missing from the discussion was, you know, what do we actually do about this on a sort of human response level? 
um, we need to adapt to whatever's happening. And so I wanted to try to help people do that. And so did you find an answer or um, are you more confused after doing all this research or where did you end up? Well, I, I found a lot of answers. Um, and, and the second sort of half of the book is nine rules that I think will help people sort of adapt and adjust to the age of AI and automation. And, but the biggest thing that I found was that we've been preparing people for this future all wrong. For many years, we've been telling people, you know, kids, adults, uh, students, um, that in order to be prepared for the future, we needed to be more machine-like ourselves. We needed to study, you know, engineering or computer science. We needed to uh, work super, super hard all the time and, and, you know, grind and hustle and optimize our productivity and life hack, you know, all of the waste and inefficiency out of our daily routines. Right. And what experts in this field told me is essentially the opposite, that we need hmm. to become better at the uniquely human things that only we can do. And that instead of trying to train people to be essentially competing with machines, we need to figure out our own niches and figure out what we can do that is going to be very hard to automate. There's one theory that I've heard a number of times, which is that humans and AI will end up collaborating and kind of work together in teams. And that when the computer and a person like play chess together, they are actually even better than when either one plays on their own. So there's maybe a happy symbiosis that happens between us. It, does that seem, uh, does that seem possible? I thought that, and I was very, I, I love that story of the humans and computers playing chess together. It sounds like the such computer. a happy Oh, ending. it's, it's amazing. It's like, we're all going to live together in perfect harmony and we'll make each other <laughs> better and robots will be our friends. Unfortunately, it's not true. I mean, yeah. it was true for a while. Humans and computers could beat computers okay. alone at chess. But, you know, within the last decade, that's become totally obsolete. I mean, now computers just wallop us every time <laughs> and, and even wallop us when humans are paired with computers. And actually, uh. that's happening in many, many domains, not just chess. Um, there have been some studies that have found that in a lot of areas, whether it's making decisions about, you know, who should get a loan and who shouldn't, or predicting certain types of, of risk, um, you know, modeling certain types of outcomes, like AI is better without us. We are essentially the dead weight in those relationships. <laughs> It's like the two people riding a two-person bicycle and one is not pedaling at all, just slowing the whole thing down. Exactly. And the, and the person who's not pedaling thinks, wow, this is great. Such teamwork. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and in the meantime, the AI is just carrying us around. So it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm being a little flip. I think there are some areas where humans can still add value, especially when the, the AIs encounter unfamiliar information. I mean, humans are still much better than computers at sort of coping with unexpected setbacks, at learning from new and novel situations, um, what is called zero-shot learning in computer science, um, mm. taking something that you've never encountered before and, and figuring out what to do. That's something that humans are still much better at than AI. So humans are not totally obsolete. 
Okay, so they did a survey, a Gallup survey, and they surveyed people and found out that everybody seems to think that at the same time, AI is super powerful. It's going to really take over a lot of people's jobs in the future, but not my job because I do something that just could never be taken over by computers. Um, does that just mean we're all probably fooling ourselves or um, how is it that everybody kind of has convinced themselves that they do something that won't be um, able to be taken over? Yeah, this is one of the most amazing things I, I found while researching the book is that we are very overconfident in our own irreplaceability. And I include myself in this too. And But if, if yeah, the survey you mentioned, I think found that like three quarters of Americans think that AI is going to destroy more jobs than it creates, but only one quarter think that AI is going to come for their job. So mm -hmm. like, and right. this is true throughout history. I mean, one of the, my favorite um, articles that I found when I was researching this book was from 1984. There was a story in the New York Times about these new... Um, ticket machines that were appearing at airports where people could just, you know, instead of talking to a travel agent, you could just go up to the machine and, and buy a plane ticket using your credit card. And, yeah. um, and they interviewed some, the reporter who wrote the story interviewed some travel agents and, um, and they were incredulous. They said, no way will people ever order a plane ticket through a machine. I mean, can you even imagine that? I mean, who would trust a machine to book a plane ticket for them. It's much too important. <laughs> and now obviously we all use machines to buy our plane tickets yeah. and you know, travel agents still exist, but there are many fewer of them. And so I think we, we, we make this mistake again and again of thinking, well, automation is someone else's problem. This is never gonna happen to me. And, you know, I see that attitude among a lot of my, my colleagues in journalism right now who say, you know, oh, there's no way a machine could ever do what I do. And meanwhile, you know, startups are working on automating their jobs right now. Yeah. So does that just mean that no, no jobs are safe? Well, it means that no job is, is automatically safe. No job yeah. is, is, you know, by virtue of the job title, totally immune from automation. Every job can be made more safe. Um, and that's what the sort of second half of the book is about is I think there are some jobs that are more human than others and that have more human elements to them than others. So if you're a factory worker or a truck driver or a retail cashier, those jobs are, are generally easier to automate than jobs like you know artists and musicians and journalists. But even the artists and musicians and journalists contain a range. I mean, my, my first job in journalism was writing corporate earnings stories. So, you know, every quarter companies release their earnings and, and, mm. you know, I would sit there and look at the press release and go, okay, um, you know, Alcoa made $9 million in its smelting division last quarter. And I would just write that out. And, and now those jobs have been automated. Software is being used to generate those stories at a lot of major news organizations. So every job contains very robotic tasks and very human tasks. And what we need to do is figure out which are which and do more of the human things because the rest is, is going to be going away. So is it the same sort of thing in like in college or um, if you're sort of trying to choose what to major in is that is, is it less about um, what topic you're studying and more about finding those types of things um, 
within whatever field it is that are not easy to automate. Yeah, I, I get asked this question a lot by parents who say, you know, what should my kid be studying? Or even I, yeah. I get it from students who say, what should I be studying? Um, if it's not computer science, what is it? And my general take on this is that that skills and traits are more um, are, make you more resilient than sort of subject matter knowledge. So mm-hmm. if you are a computer programmer, that I mean, that's a job that is you know, being automated in, in some cases, you know, they are not safe from automation, even though they are the ones creating a lot of the automation. Um, And so it matters if you have human skills to layer on top of those technical skills. If you're a computer programmer, you need to be good at communicating with people who aren't as technical. You need to be able to be good at coming up with new and creative solutions to problems. There, there are these skills that, you know, even if the sort of programming language or the subject matter sort of becomes obsolete you have these sort of transferable human skills that can help you you know make the jump to another profession so that's what i'd focus on if i were a student today is not necessarily what major i had or what classes i took but how do i build the skills these deeply human skills that are going to be helpful in 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 making me hard to replace no matter what i end up doing as my career One of those things you talked about briefly earlier is dealing with unexpected things or things that don't match the previous patterns, surprising things. And you talk about a study in here or 2018 experiment. They're trying to uh, teach AI to recognize objects in a room and um, they teach you how to recognize all these different objects in a living room which it gets really good at but then once they put an elephant into the living room it totally starts to confuse the software to where it just can't figure out what's going on um what does that tell us i guess about kind of um how it works and what things it's not good at doing right well this is an example of sort of ai's limitations i mean right now AI likes things that are really structured and regular and repetitive. And so, you know, things like chess, where if you're an AI trying to learn how to play chess, you can play 10 million games against yourself, getting a little bit better each time. Um, And eventually you'll you'll beat even the best humans. Um, But a lot of things in life are not like that repetitive or that iterative. We don't have you know, um, 10 million chances to get something right. Um, so I think that's where humans have the advantages, these sort of situations and jobs in which there is a lot of change and a lot of chaos and very few regular predictable events, um, which is why, you know, an AI could beat a human in chess, but it would be very bad if you asked it to teach a kindergarten class, because that's not a job that involves a lot of regularity of any kind. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm trying to sort of shift the conversation around AI and automation from what job should I get to how should I do that job? What kind of traits yeah. and skills are important no matter what I'm doing? I 
And so one of those that you talk about that I found really interesting is combinatorial creativity. What the heck is that? And why is it so important? And why is it uniquely human? Yeah, so combinatorial creativity is a word that uh, Maria Popova of, of Brain Pickings, um, I, I first heard that phrase from her. And it's basically this idea that we take things from one area of our lives and combine it with something else and come up with some new idea. So, you yeah. know, there are examples of this through history, like, you know, famous inventors who, you know, play musical instruments and have big breakthroughs yeah. while they're, while they're playing musical instruments or, you know, um, you know, when I, an apple falls on their head. Exactly. When an apple falls on their head. But I mean, humans are very good at this. We, you know, we take something that we learned 10 years ago in a totally different context and we apply it to a problem we're trying to solve now. Yeah. But, you know, machines are not very good at doing that right. They're, they're, there's this thing called transfer learning, which is basically where you're building an algorithm to do one thing and then trying to have it learn to do something totally different. And it's not very good. So we still have the advantage when it comes to sort of that combinatorial type of expertise, these sort of rare combinations of, of skills, these sort of things that we take from one area of our lives and apply somewhere else. That's something that humans are very good at that AI is not very good at. So then is there something that we should be doing to get better at that or to use that like to our advantage somehow uh, to do our jobs and uh, live in a better way. Yeah, well, I think I think we can embrace the sort of diversity of of experiences that give rise to that combin combinational creativity. So, mm. you know, one thing I tell writers who ask me for advice, you know, people who are journalism students or coming up in the writing world, is is develop multiple niches. So. You know, one of my my favorite writers is is um, James Fallows at the Atlantic, and he has like he's also a a, a pilot in his spare time. He um, he flies his own planes, and um, and that expertise you would think is like what does that have to do with being a writer? But it has actually made him an extraordinary storyteller it's sort of given him the ability to you know when things like a, a big plane crash happens and it's all over the news he's able to actually understand like the intricacies of what it means to fly a plane and explain how that happened just mm. with this big container ship that was stuck in the suez canal um, for the last week or so there are you know there are a couple journalists who are really um, maritime shipping experts and yeah. so that expertise has become very valuable um, all of a sudden. And so I think building up these kind of different skills in different parts of our lives that we can sort of combine together when the opportunity strikes is is really important. Yeah, because then you'll just, situations will come along where you can see how there's overlap and different skill sets that you have that can be kind of used in a new way. But it's like, you need to have lots of those different sort of uh, perspectives and skill sets to draw from, then you also have to be in a lot of different situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, we have taught people about the value of being um, specialists. And I think there's certainly something to that, there, you know, expertise is good and people who have it um, are, are generally, you know, well positioned, but there's also the, the sort of, sort of having multi, specialties 
um, having sort of different things that you are, that you can go deep on, I think is really an underrated skill. We're here with Kevin Roos talking about AI and the future and how we can prepare our teenagers to thrive in it. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. There's a difference between how you use your phone and how much you use your phone. In the age of AI and automation, what's going to separate us is not our our depth on any one topic. It's going to be our ability to sort of shift between topics and apply cross-domain knowledge. And that's what I think, you know, a lot of today's education is missing. There was a study a few years ago at UCLA where they, they gave a group of school-aged children sort of a test of social-emotional skills. So how well are you able to read other people's emotions? Um, And then they took half the group and sent them off into the woods for five days to like some, a summer camp or a nature camp. And with no screens, no devices, they were purely on their own, you know, with each other for five days, you know, doing the things that you do when you're out in nature, talking and hanging out and building fires and doing whatever. And then they brought that group back and gave them all the test again. Um, And the kids who had gone out into the woods uh, with no phones, just for five days, markedly improved their scores on this test of social emotional intelligence. So just going without your phone for five days, it turns out dramatically increases your ability to read other people, to pay attention to what they're feeling, to sort of become more empathetic and aware. Um, and so, you know, think about what we could do if we did that for more than five days. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.